Good morning, everyone. If you want to follow the reading from the Church Bible, the page numbers are on the screen. And if not, then listen intently as we read God's Word together. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection came to him with the question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? Since all of them were married to her. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But what about the resurrection of the dead? Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? 
No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to this reading from Holy Scripture. Thanks, Hilton. Let's pray again as we come to God's Word. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that we wouldn't just learn things about you, but that we pray that we would learn to love you with all of our hearts, with all our souls, and with all of our minds. And we pray it for his glory. Amen. Well, it's a shame this passage didn't come a couple of weeks ago, because I want to begin by telling you about three of the great April Fool's pranks. Firstly, uh, back in 1962, before colour television was prominent in our homes, it was broadcast on Swedish national news that if you watched black and white TV through a stocking, then you'd see things in colour. And so the next day, half the nation went out, bought their stockings, pulled them over their heads and sat there watching black and white TV. Uh, And of course, nothing changed. Then in 1998, Burger King advertised a new left-handed Whopper, where apparently all the ingredients, whatever this looks like, had been turned around 180 degrees to make it easier to hold for the left-hander. So again, the next day, thousands went out to purchase the new left-handed Whopper and were a little bit disappointed to find, I think it was very similar uh, to the classic Whopper. Then in 2011, Gmail, who uh, are now quite famous for their April Fool's pranks, launched something they called GG Motion, where all the, the actions on the screen were actually controlled by your physical body. So if you wanted to reply to an email, you'd do that in front of the screen. If you wanted to send an email, you'd point, and you'd send the email as you're pointing at the screen. And so again, if you had a, a number of cameras in offices on that day, you'd have seen people dancing in front of their computer screens trying to send emails, which of course was to no avail. There's a few giggles, because you see, here's the thing. Some tricks are actually quite funny. Those I find quite funny. But of course, there's other tricks that are not quite as funny. Tricks and trick questions, like the ones that we've read about in our passage today, that are actually born out of evil intent. They're not designed to humor. They're actually designed to hurt. Have a look at the words in verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? What we have before us in Matthew chapter 22 are three trick questions, three traps that are laid down by the opponents of Jesus that are designed to ridicule him, to expose him in public and designed to silence him. But of course, Jesus knows what's going on. He's God. He knows everything. He knows what they're planning in their hearts. And so in the end, it is they who are left speechless in the face of such divine wisdom. And so as we look back at these these three trick questions, these interactions, these dialogues that Jesus has with his opponents, I'm actually strangely thankful that these questions were asked even if they were asked with the wrong intent. Because as Jesus responds in each of these occasions, as he interacts with these people, he helps them understand and he helps us understand what it looks like to live in his kingdom. 
what it looks like to live as he wants us to live in his world. There is much for us to learn this morning from the lips of our Lord. And the first trap I've called the denarius. Have a look down at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap, literally to entangle Jesus in his words. Now, that's maybe not too surprising if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks. You've seen this tension building between the leaders of Israel and the Lord Jesus. But what is surprising is what we find in verse 16. Because the Pharisees sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. You see, these two groups of people hated each other. The Pharisees hated the fact that they were living under Roman rule and occupation and they wanted nothing more than to be rid of the Romans. The Herodians, on the other hand, had befriended Rome and were reaping the benefits of it. Yet here they come together in this slightly strange union in a shared opposition against Jesus as they try to trap him in their words. And look at what they say in verse 16. Notice the, notice the false humility. They sent their disciples along to him with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, teacher, they're out to trick him, but teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. They come with flattering words, but so deceptive. Because they also come with evil intent. And their question in verse 17 is quite brilliant. Tell us then, they say, Jesus. Tell us then, Jesus, tell us. What is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Is it right, Jesus, to pay taxes to Rome or not? Now, if Jesus says yes... He would have declared his allegiance to Rome and the Jews would have clobbered him. If Jesus says no, he would have been guilty of rising up against Rome and the Herodians would have clobbered him. It is the perfect trap. They must have sat there over breakfast for hours planning this very question. They've got him, haven't they? Jesus is stuck. He's snookered between a rock and a hard place. Where is he going to go? But of course, Jesus knows exactly what's going on. We've seen that already. In verse 18, Jesus knew the evil intent. You hypocrites, he said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And so someone from the crowd steps forward and he puts his hand into his pocket and and he pulls out a denarius, which was the common currency in the day of Jesus. And you can see one here on the screen engraved with the face of Caesar upon it. And an inscription that that elevated Caesar to the place of a god. And the Jews were confronted with this every day of their lives. It was a constant reminder every time money exchanged hands that they were living under Roman rule and Roman occupation. And so Jesus now with this coin in his hand says to them in verse 19, whose image is that? Whose inscription is it on the coin? See, it's not a trick question. The answer is simple. Caesar. Caesar's image. Caesar's face. Caesar's inscription. So who does it belong to? It belongs to Caesar. So give it to him, says Jesus. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's got his image on it, so give it back 
to him. But of course, Jesus doesn't finish there, does he? Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. So let me ask you a question this morning. If, if we see the image of Caesar on a coin, where do we see the image of God this morning? And I'll give you a clue. It's not on coins. Where do we find the image of God? Someone tell me. Lila's pointing around. People, yeah? We find the image of God in people. We were made in the very image of God. His mark, his stamp, his imprint upon our lives. You remember the, the, the Genesis creation narrative? So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God brought us into existence in his image. He made us and he saved us in order that we would be his image bearers in this world. Walking, talking, living, breathing images of our great God. You see, God wants the world to look at us, people, but certainly Christian believers, and see something of him. We were made in the image of God to image God. So the question for you and the question for me is, does it? As the world looks at the church, does it see something of the glory and the greatness and the goodness of God? Does Long Crendon see that as it looks at this community of believers? One of my best mates growing up, a mate called Davo, um, when I was converted to Christ age 22, he's still a good friend. He was probably my one friend that found it hardest. My conversion coming to Christ, he found that most difficult. He was probably the frostiest with my conversion. And it wasn't until a couple of years down the line that I really unpicked why. I knew that when he was young, when he was seven, his mum and dad had, had separated. But what I went on to understand was that his, his mum ran off with a vicar of the local church. The most painful experience in his childhood that grew and leader at him was a result of a so-called professing believer and leader doing what he did. How we live for Jesus really matters. It really matters that we bear the stamp, the mark of God, that we live as God wants us to live in this world. He made us in his image To bear his image. So you see, we do have a duty to the state, right? To pay our taxes. To abide by its laws. Jesus says that is good and proper. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. But we have a greater duty and a greater responsibility to give our whole life back to God in worship. We're the whole realm of nature mine. Everything in creation. If it was mine... It's an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. We were made in the image of God to image God in this world. And the response of those listening in verse 22, when they heard this, they were amazed. They were stunned into silence by such divine wisdom. 
That's trap two, which I've called the resurrection question. Have a look at verse 23. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. It's the same day. The Pharisees have tried and failed. They've sort of blurred off into the background. They're probably there, still hanging around, listening to what's going on. And the Sadducees step in. And now they're trying to trick Jesus. But as you can see in verse 23, there's something very distinctive about this group of people, about the Sadducees, that Matthew, the author, wants us to know. Can you see it there? They don't believe in a resurrection. They deny what is a central Christian doctrine, that of a physical, bodily resurrection. And the question that follows in verse 24 onwards is based on their ignorance in this area. Let me read it to you. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children... His brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for her. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. Same thing happened to the second and the third brother. Right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now, here's the question. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? Since all of them were married to her question was designed to do two things number one undermine the truth of the resurrection and number two to expose jesus to try and entangle him in his words but again i'm glad they asked it i'm glad they asked that question because you know what it's really relevant for us today in fact there's probably people in this room and if not in this room people outside this room that have been married to more than two people so what does that look like in heaven It's the question, what does it look like when you get to heaven? Who will they be married to? Well, look how Jesus responds in verse 29. He's not afraid to call a spade a spade sometimes, is he? Jesus replied, you are in error. You've got it all wrong, Sadducees. And he gives two reasons why. Number one, you do not know the word of God. The word of God that you profess to know, you don't understand even what it says. And you do not know the power of God. And Jesus deals firstly with the power in verse 30. Look at what he says. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Things will be very different in heaven, says Jesus. It's not that you won't see your marriage partners in glory, I've got no doubt. That I'll see hand in heaven, that we'll hang out together, we'll eat together, we'll laugh together. There is a continuity between this life and the next. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. But here's the thing. I will not relate to Han in the same exclusive way that I do here. In fact, in heaven, my focus will not be on my spouse. It will be on my Savior. He will be my focus in heaven. And if that leaves you a little bit heavy-hearted as you look across maybe at your husband and your wife now, then there's something that you haven't understood about how good heaven will be. There's something you haven't understood about God's power to create a whole new way of life. You see, heaven isn't just like a small upgrade, like when you get a new iPhone and it comes with a few new features. Heaven will be this, this whole new created order, a whole new way of life. 
a sinless state of perfect union, not with just, just with God, but with all of his people. All of them. Perfect union, perfect relationships that far go beyond even the most intimate we can enjoy here. And in that way, we will be like the angels in heaven. And so Jesus says to the Sadducees, firstly, you've got it wrong because you underestimate the power of God and what he's going to do in the new creation. Secondly, you've got it wrong because you do not know the scriptures which you profess to understand. Have a look at verse 31 and 32. But about the resurrection of the dead, he says, have you not read this, Sadducees? It's in your own scriptures. Have you not read it? It's what God said to you. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus adds, he is not the God of the living, but the dead. I've said that wrong. (laughs) I've said that so wrong. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And there's a number of places that Jesus could have gone to in the Old Testament to make exactly the same points to speak about the resurrection of the dead. Isaiah 26, verse 19. But your dead will live, says the Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Daniel 12, verse 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. But instead of going to those references, Jesus goes to those words taken from Exodus chapter 3. Words that the Sadducees would have been all too familiar with. Have you not read, says Jesus, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You see, when God first spoke these words to Moses from the burning bush, Jacob, the last of the three great fathers of faith, if you like, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He'd been dead for 200 years by this point. But you notice how God speaks about them? He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It wasn't, I was just their God back then. He says, I am the God. Right now, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why does Jesus speak in the present tense? Because they were then when he spoke and are and now alive with him in paradise. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You see, for the Christian believer, death does not sever our relationship with God. It actually brings us closer to him. And as we stand at this privileged point in salvation history where we can look back on the finished work of Jesus, we don't just have the promises to stand on, God's promises in the Old Testament. We have the fulfillment of those promises in the saving work of the Savior King, the Lord Jesus. We have the Easter story in all its fullness, all its grandeur and all its beauty. As Jesus says in John's Gospel, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? As Jesus speaks to Mary and Martha, he stands before them as the resurrection and the life. The one who has beaten death. And he says, do you believe in this? From Genesis to Revelation, we have a resurrection God. How wrong the Sadducees were. And once again, the crowds were astonished at his teaching in verse 33. 
which brings us to our final trap, which I've called law and love. Verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. It's almost comical, isn't it? They've been silenced once. They've gone to the fringes. Sadducees, they've been put in their place. They've moved away. Back come the Pharisees again. And they've got another question. And they're trying to trick Jesus again. Verse 35 and verse 36. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, I don't know what they were expecting from Jesus in reply. But his response in verse 37 is textbook. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus takes him straight back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, which was the heartland for any Orthodox Jew. A prayer known as the Shema that they recited every day of their lives. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? He goes beyond the question. Look in verse 39. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here then are the two great purposes of God for you today. The foremost, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind, with all that you are, the totality of your being, full, unbridled loyalty to Christ. There is no such thing as superficial allegiance when it comes to Jesus. Foremostly, to love the Lord your God with everything you've got. And then secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus adds his own commentary there to, to the law in the Old Testament, all the law and the prophets, verse 40, hang on these two commandments. Every single detail of the law, every single prophetic utterance hangs on one of these two great pegs, love God and love others. So let me ask you a question. How are you doing this morning? How are you doing when it comes to loving God and loving others? You see, by nature, we're all sinners. And therefore, we're all deficient of love. We all fail to love the Lord our God as we should. And we all fail to love each other as we should. So where do we go then? Where do we go as a group of needy people who need God's help to love Where do we go? We go to the gospel. We go to the Lord Jesus himself because that's where the power to love lies. We love because he first loved us. Only because Jesus first loved us can we love him and love others as God intends. Only when we experience the love of God for us in Christ Jesus can we begin to love as God wants us to love. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. These are the fruit of God's work in our hearts. They are not conjured up in our own strength. This is the work of God's grace in the heart of a human being. We can only love others and relate to others as God intends when we rely on his strength and power. And so I wonder, do we ask him for that help? When we come before our Lord and our Savior each day and we lay our life before him, do we ask God to to give us the power and the grace to love when sometimes it is very hard to do so? You see, the Pharisees knew exactly what they were meant to do. 
They knew the law of God inside out. They knew the commands. They just didn't have the power to do it because they got Jesus Christ all wrong. And so the question that we end with is the one that Jesus asks in verse 42. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? What do you think this morning about the life of Jesus? What do you think about the death of Jesus? What do you think about the resurrection of Jesus? What do you think about the ascension of Jesus to glory? What do you think about the return of Jesus Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? You see, the Pharisees had a small view of their promised saviour. Their Messiah was just going to be another human king in the mould of David who would come and defeat the Romans and give them back their land. But of course, God's plans for the Messiah were far bigger than that, weren't they? Because the Messiah wouldn't just be the son of David. Not just a human king born into the line of David, as the Pharisees were correct to point out in verse 42. But he would also be the divine son of God. And from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, he's been at pains to show us this is true. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him. What will they call him? Emmanuel. God with us. Not just the son of David, but the son of God. And that is why John the Baptist was unworthy to even stoop down and untie the sandals of Jesus. It's why the wind and the waves obeyed him when he spoke. It's why the tomb could not hold him. And it is why David called him Lord. But what about you? As you're sat there this morning, it's not a new think about the Messiah. It's not enough to be amazed at his wisdom. Hopefully you're going, wow, Jesus is incredibly wise how he deals with these people. It's not enough to be amazed at the wisdom of Jesus. Many of the crowds were amazed at the wisdom of Jesus. We're called to respond in, in worship to Jesus as we recognize that he alone is our savior king. So let me give you a moment to ponder that question. What do you think about the Messiah? And then Mark's going to come and lead us in some prayers.